This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. You've no doubt noticed that some companies are great innovators. Some make it happen. Others end up in disaster. What are the big mistakes that the most ordinary companies make? And what are the things that the best companies do right? To answer the question, Steve Shapiro. Steve, how are you? Hey, Joel. Good to see you. Welcome to the show, man. Uh, Nice to have you. Good to be here. So what are the big mistakes that the uh, ordinary companies make that the best companies do not make? What are you seeing? I think the first thing is companies sort of have collapsed creativity and innovation. They think of them as being the same thing. So what they do is in the name of innovation, they ask people for ideas, they ask for opinions. And what ends up happening is they just get so much wasted energy. Look, companies don't have an unlimited amount of time, money, or resources. So we need to get them focused. And so the more successful companies recognize that it's not about ideas. It's not even about solutions. It's about questions. And if we can focus people back on what are the most important questions to ask, then that unleashes the greatest value. So let's just get everybody on the same page, just because innovation, uh, I probably think of something different than you think about. So from your perspective, what is innovation? So to me, there's two definitions to it. The one is how you innovate. The other one is why you innovate. How you innovate is it's an end-to-end process that starts with an issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity and ends with the creation of value. So basically, the starting point is not an idea. It is a question. It's an opportunity. It's a problem. It's an issue, something that we're working on, and the result has to be value. And so that's, to me, the most important thing. And the reason why we do this is because it's about relevancy. Uh, we've got companies who are working on so many different projects and they're moving in the wrong direction quickly. And as a result, they become irrelevant. And we see it every day with companies going bankrupt and becoming just totally useless. Well, are these companies going bankrupt uh, because they're uh, over-innovating? Is it because they're under-innovating? What do you think? I don't think... I don't think they're over or under innovating. I think they're innovating in the wrong areas. So all these companies, look, they have smart people. But the problem is if you take a company that's been around for a long time and you have employees who've been around for a long time, their past experiences are going to potentially negative impact their future results. My belief is expertise is the enemy of innovation because the more you know about a topic, the harder it is for you to think differently about it. And so what ends up happening is if you hire people who fit the mold and you get people who are in the company for a long time, people who know the industry well, well, it means you actually knew the industry. doesn't mean you know the industry as it is today and will be in the future. That to me is the biggest issue is they're solving the wrong problems. It's not that they're not doing things. They're just doing the wrong things. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with this. Uh, and, and the irony of it all is that you said it in, uh, just a second ago, and that is that all these companies have smart people. That's part of the problem is, first of all, everybody's smart. All people are smart of the things that they like and enjoy and want to learn more about. So everybody's smart. And, and you got all these people that are smart in a certain way, but they need to bring some fresh blood. They need to bring some new ideas. So where does it come from? Where do they get the new ideas? Well, and again, I don't think it's the ideas that they need. I think it's the questions. And so they need to put together an approach for being able to make sure they're focusing on the right questions and they're framing them the right way. Uh, In some cases, you will be able to do that internally. But in a lot of cases, you have to partner externally. It's going to think tanks and futurists and others who are seeing what's happening out there. If you only talk to industry experts and people inside your company, well, you're probably going to be asking the same questions you've always asked. So a lot of it is that outside-in thinking. 
rather than the inside out thinking, which is what so many companies do. Have you seen any companies that you work with? I know you're inside of a lot of companies. Have you seen any of these companies that are doing these incubators where they're taking entrepreneurial companies or younger companies and they're bringing them in, they're investing in them and they're cultivating some of their ideas so that they can have a strategic relationship in the future? Absolutely. And I think that can be a very solid strategy. You know, here's the, the interesting paradox is in some respects, companies should not be innovating internally. And the reason why I say that is if you think about the way a company innovates is it is sort of a trial and error approach. We have an idea of something we need to focus on. We tried and we're going to fail. So we change it and we try it again. And so the lead time is very long and the failure rate tends to be very high. But if you start investing in the market, whether it's using open innovation and crowdsourcing to find solutions, whether it's like you were describing, partnering with uh, you know, startup organizations so that you have a competitive edge over somebody else, that to me is some of the smartest ways that you can spend your money. But then those companies end up with an integration problem. They have to integrate people because they end up buying companies and they have to bring them in. And then frequently, don't they kill the, uh, the golden goose when they bring the company into their, to their culture? Well, they do, but I think that's why they need to be integrated from the beginning. You don't want to, the biggest challenge is when you have a startup is you don't want the startup to operate like a large company, but at the same time, there has to be the ownership inside of the larger organization to take on those new approaches. So I was actually just yesterday uh, with a major financial services company and they have an incubator of their own and it's actually so far away from uh, the, the central headquarters. They intentionally put it somewhere that basically nobody from corporate was ever going to mess around with it. And they're investing in, now this is a lot of internal, but they're partnering with universities, but they're developing some really cool new technologies that they could never have developed internally. So sometimes these incubators don't even have to be third-party companies. They could be internal incubators. And the key with these is you need to make sure that the connection back to the mothership, back to the main corporation, uh, is built into the process because otherwise you get these antibodies that reject anything that comes too far down the line. So how much leash does the mothership give these little companies and what kind of resources do they give them? What do you see in? I mean, the leash can be as long or as short as they want them to be. I've seen it be a number of different ways, but I would say that at the end of the day, where the incubators tend to fail is when there's too much, too long of a leash. And the reason for that is not because they're creating bad things, but they're not creating solutions that meet the needs of the business. Because if you don't have somebody inside the company with money in corporate who's actually willing to sponsor and fund something in the long run, then it's just going to sort of evaporate. So you want it to be far enough away that the team can develop what it needs to develop, but it needs to be close enough so that at least the initial requirements are understood from the corporate. And also the uh, sponsorship and ownership is at least there from the beginning. Now, once you start doing all the incubation and the testing and all that, you can let that team go free. But then at some point, you need to bring it back in. So uh, metaphors aside, when we talk about long leash, we're talking about accountability. We're talking about oversight. So are these companies, these large companies, are they providing oversight? Are they requiring uh, quarterly reports? I mean, are they sitting on boards of directors? Any patterns that come about? Well, I guess it depends on if it's an internal or external incubator. So the internal incubators, no, obviously, there's no board there. But uh, And the goal is to give them as much leash as possible as long as they are solving the business problem that is needed. And I think that's where a lot of these things go wrong is somebody think people get so enamored with new technology today 
but they really don't step back and say, what's the problem this technology is truly solving and how am I going to ultimately integrate it into our business? And you need to answer those two questions for any new technology, any new innovation that's developed that that has to be part of the process. If you're too passive in the investment in an incubator, then Look, it helps the incubator because the incubator gets to do their thing, but then if you bring it back into the organization, they're going to crush it. So you do need, at least in the beginning, in the middle, and the end, have some connect points to make sure they're solving the right problems. You know, the reason it's so interesting to me when I go to these venture capital conferences and places where I circulate or speak at or otherwise, you know, I was somebody who brought a company to a Fortune 500, so I was the beneficiary of those kinds of dollars. And, and I had a really healthy and good relationship with this company. Now, they had a, a pretty good uh, interest in my company. And what I'm understanding is that a lot of times, companies like Microsoft, Intel, companies that are running these pretty large incubators, a lot of times they only have a first right of refusal. They don't have a, a lot of teeth in these little companies. So that, that's the reason this is such a fascinating topic to me is because I lived through this situation. Yeah. And again, I don't think there's a right answer or a wrong answer to any of this. I think there is... The culture of the organization also, the culture of the the main corporation also is going to have a big impact on the nature of the relationships with the startups and the incubators. So there's never a one-size-fits-all strategy for any of this. Well, listen, some of these companies are too big and stiff and and just too stodgy to be able to even deal with an incubator kind of arrangement. So what other kinds of arrangements are you seeing? If one style is they take companies in and they fund them, What's another way that companies are innovating? If they're asking the good questions and they're doing the things you're talking about, what are some of the ways that companies are getting their best ideas and their best new uh, strategies for the future? I'm a huge fan of what's called open innovation, and that's not specifically about incubators. It's anytime you're looking for solutions externally. So one approach would be that I have a problem that I'm trying to solve, and I can then try to figure out a way of asking either a very specific crowd or ask everyone for solutions. And there's a number of platforms out there that are just, they've found solutions to problems that people have been working on for decades. And in a matter of weeks, they found the solution. And here's the key. The reason why these work is because if you've got 100 people inside of an electronics company trying to solve an electronics problem, adding the 101st electronics expert is not going to make a difference. But if you bring somebody who has an experience in uh, you know, water flow, if you've got somebody who's a botanist, if you've got somebody uh, who's from Hollywood, we've seen some of the biggest breakthroughs actually come from other industries, other functions, other disciplines. And that, to me, is the key is when you do it right, you get the biggest breakthrough solutions outside your area of expertise. Well, the cool thing is that big companies, uh, that's really their gift. Their gift is that they have access to so much additional resource and so many different types of uh, people that it's fantastic. But uh, what's so brilliantly simple about what you're suggesting is that we just have to do what we don't think of doing, which is asking for help. I mean, that's really what you're saying is, you know, in a sales context, I've always said that you have to treat people like spies. Now, I'm not talking about like military spies, but you have to, you know, people have intel. People, for example, people in your family. You know, if you want to know how people are using a phone or they're, how they're using a software, how they're using a tool or how they're doing anything, just look around around you. You don't have to go into a library and look into encyclopedias. I mean, it's right there and it's living and breathing. So I'm with you. That's, that's a cool thing. And I just want to just say one quick thing on that is what you're hitting on is a big part of good innovation, which is called ethnography, which basically means instead of doing, I mean, we're, we're so wrapped up in big data and analytics and numbers, but we lose the fact that 
that can only give us so much information. And observation will often uncover sometimes the biggest needs. And so what you described, it's not even asking people because I don't believe in customer surveys or focus groups because you don't get great information from that. It's getting out there and actually looking at people, watching people, observing the way people operate. That's when you get some of your biggest insights. And I think that's a really important part of the process. How do we defend against confirmation bias? I mean, I mean, this is a giant problem. You know, it's a problem in the media. I mean, you know, the media, you know, they keep talking about polls. The polls turned out to not really be true because people don't want to tell the truth in polls. Uh, you know, in fact, there was a big joke during the presidential election of 2016 that uh, Donald Trump was elected by leaners. And, and I said to a friend of mine in Ohio, so what's a leaner? He said, it's a guy who leans in your ear and whispers who he's voting for. You know, and, and it's these people that didn't want to say anything out loud. And that's this whole confirmation bias. So we believe in the poll because it supports what we think should be right. How are these companies kind of getting out of their own way and defending against these kinds of problems? I got to tell you, th this is my favorite topic. The whole concept of confirmation bias is probably my favorite topic when it comes to innovation. Great quote from Scott Cook, who's the guy who founded Intuit. He said, for each of our failures... We had spreadsheets that looked awesome. <laughs> I love, I just, I absolutely well, love Well, listen, I've, I've, got a, I've got a little quote of my own, and that is, I talk to people about making projections. And one of the things that I say is that, uh, you know, when I was at Price Waterhouse uh, as a youngster, I got so good at making projections that even I believed them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is awesome. We can make a business case, say anything we wanted to say. Exactly. So, so how do you stay rational? How do you stay above the fray and look at it in an objective way that gives you good results? I mean, what are the better companies doing about this problem? There's a, a couple of different pieces. One is some level of independence. And what I mean by that is if you, Joel, have an idea and you think it's a great idea, you are the last person in the world who should be testing out the viability of that idea. Because even if you ran great experiments that were really conducted well, you know how it works. You're going to ignore any of the evidence that contradicts what you're thinking. Or discount it for sure. For, yeah, for sure. I mean, you're buying a car and you love this car and you read consumer reports or car and driver and they say something negative about your car. You'd be like, yeah, but that's a different situation. And you're going to well, always Not only that, justify. but the reviewer, it must be an idiot. Or there's something wrong with the guy. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> we can very easily discount anything. And therefore, we need some level of independence, whether it's a, a devil's advocate group that is specifically designed to disprove your hypothesis. So there's a, an innovation. There is a cousin to confirmation bias, which is called positive test strategy. And positive test strategy is a big mistake that innovators make, which is basically means we're going to run experiments designed to prove that our idea is a good idea. But they don't take the time to run experiments which are specifically designed to disprove the idea. And you need to do that with an independent group that doesn't have these biases. In fact, you want people who are actually have biases in the other direction. And you have to pull it back together. So that's, that's, to me, one of the most powerful ways is that independence, but also reminding people there's so many cool studies uh, on confirmation bias, and they found that sometimes just telling people about confirmation bias and giving them certain types of visual reminders when they're making decisions helps them at least check their own, their own beliefs. You know, one of the things that I've seen certain CEOs do, because I work with some of these guys, I provide these executive sounding board services. So in other words, uh, a CEO will retain me and they'll say, listen, Joel, I need to call you once in a while 
and just ask you a question. And I need you to tell me the answer without regard to all the politics in the office, uh, whether you're going to get a promotion from me or not. But we've got a contract for me to provide this service for a long time. And I'm going to like it regardless of what the answer is. I just need to hear the truth because I can't get the truth around me. Um, do you do anything like that? You, I would imagine you're probably good at that. Yeah. So I come from a consulting background. I was 15 years with Accenture. And you know what I've discovered is that the biggest value that I bring to my clients quite often isn't just my intellectual property content and processes, but it is that ability to look at their problems differently than they do. And, and we did a survey of my clients recently, and pretty much the common theme was, I can see things that they can't see. But of course, I can see things that they can't because they're so close to it, they couldn't possibly see it. And that to well, me so, is the opportunity. Well, right. So they can't see it, and neither can anybody else on their team. So do companies engage you to kind of be an outsider, to look at some of their stuff and be a sounding board and tell them the truth, tell the, tell the emperor he has no clothes when there's no clothes? I mean, I do that. It's not always the most comfortable thing to do, but the honesty, they always appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I love doing those because it's high value with very little time. Uh, it's not like I'm coming in and creating a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides, which is what so many people do. They don't need that. They just need somebody to say, look, you're full of it right now. You're moving in the wrong direction. Here's where you need to go. Come back to me in a week when you've actually rethought what you're doing. It could be literally, I've had some conversations that were like three to five minutes long that have completely changed the direction of a company because it is exactly that. That's course correction. So yeah. I love doing that because it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's massive value. I call those turning points. And you know, when you land on a turning point, and in five minutes or 10 minutes, you can change the way somebody thinks about something. We don't know how much impact we have on the world, but I'll tell you what, that decision affects potentially tens of thousands, if not more people, of their livelihoods. Because if a business goes in a different direction, who knows what could go wrong and what could happen. So I think it's awesome when we do that sort of thing. So what, what are some of the big questions that you ask companies or when you're talking on a stage and you're talking to companies about what they should be thinking about, are, do you have like a stack of questions that are kind of standard that they should start with or what, what is your process? Yeah. So for me, usually one of the first questions, especially if I'm dealing with the executives is can you clearly articulate your differentiator? And that is almost never happened because what people start to do is give me mission statements and vision statements. And those things aren't differentiators. They're just sort of guiding principles. Well, I think, I think uh, that's the sort of blah, blah, blah that nobody really understands anyway. Well, let's face it. You take somebody's mission statement, a vision statement, and you remove the name of the company and maybe eliminate the industry. And you ask somebody, which company is this? Nobody yeah, will that's ever. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's yeah. all blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, but a differentiator. So if I go, like I've worked in the hospitality industry. And so I would just ask people like, what hotel chain has the best beds? And like 70 to 80% of the time, it's always Weston because they have the heavenly bed. Now, are they the best beds? No, they're not the best beds, but that's what they're known for. They're heavenly shower and heavenly bed. And so they have at least that as a differentiator. And a differentiator isn't me saying that this is how we want to be known in the market. It's how the market knows us. And so the only way to do that is not for you to sit around in, in the office and say, this is how we're going to differentiate ourselves. It's like, that's that you need, to, as you said before, you need to get out there. And so I have a series of questions that I will have companies ask their current customers, their past customers, and people who've never done business with them. 
And the whole idea is to triangulate on the reason why somebody would do business with you and not someone else. And then once you understand this differentiator, it's, it becomes your compass in terms of how you invest. Because I always say, innovate where you differentiate. There's a thousand different things you could invest in in your business, but if it's not helping you stand out from the competition, if it's just a me too or an also ran, now you're not going to get the best returns on it. So there's different strategies for each of the different types of your organization. So listen, so you, so you spent a lot of time in hospitality, right? That, that's what you just said. You, um, Amongst other companies. How, yeah. how are those loyalty programs working? Are they still working? I mean, they're 40 years old now that the airline programs, hotel programs, are they still as effective as they were? Yeah, I think they're, look, they're changing. Obviously, in the hotel industry, you have now Airbnb, which is a force to be reckoned with. They uh, also just recently got into the hotel business. They just bought hotels tonight, I think, was just announced the other day. So they're moving away from being solely these peer-to-peer types of things to also now hotel reservations. So the the challenge for a lot of the, the hotels is gaining access to the customer. That really, so sometimes it's not even about the points. I mean, like for me, the reason why I stay with certain changes is actually not about the points. I don't need more hotel stays. I stay in hotels enough. I'm looking to stay (laughs) at home, but it's the perks. So if you're platinum with a particular chain, you get benefits when you're there. It feels more like home. That for me is what I become interested in. You get the upgraded Wi-Fi and all these other things. I think those are, you know, valuable benefits for a business traveler in particular. And the business travelers where most of the hotels make their money. In fact, it's a lot of the meetings that they make most of their money. Yeah, for sure. Listen, one of the things that I value the most, I largely stay with Hilton uh, and I'm diamond, you know, like I travel a lot like you do. And one of the things that's the most valuable to me is if I'm in an airport and it's 11 o'clock at night and it's, there's an emergency and I need a hotel and the hotel sold out, they always hold one or two rooms back for a diamond member. And, and Hilton has taken care of me in uh, the most remarkable ways. I mean, I, I one time was dissatisfied at one hotel and a Hilton sent a, a bus to pick me up and take me to their hotel because it was like uh, some bugs in my room and it, I was in Florida, actually near you, and, and I saw a bug that looked like a, I don't know, like a flying reptile. I don't know what it was. It was the biggest <laughs> thing I've ever seen, <laughs> but we don't have those in California, and it scared me to death, and I called. I, I, I got to get out of this place. It was uh, terrifying to me, so I, I thought I was going to be attacked by lizards. Or I don't know what it was, but listen, that's that's funny. Um, so what, what are some trends going in, in innovation? Are there any things that many companies are doing and they're doing in the right direction, or are there some trends that we need to think about? Well, I think there's trends and then there's the right trends. So I'll give you the trends. The trends are technology. So these days, when you talk to a company in their mind, uh, innovations about new technologies or digital transformation, it's about blockchain, it's about AI, it's about virtual reality, augmented reality. So that's the trend. The problem is most of these technologies, if you know the hype curve, they're like way up on the hype curve, which means everybody's talking about them, everybody's investing in them, but they're not getting the results. And the reason why they're not getting the results comes back to where we started. If you're solving the wrong problem, no matter how much money you throw at a problem, it's never going to give you the right answer. And I think that's to me, and I think companies are waking up to this, but it's it's slow uh, because I think they're afraid. They're afraid that if I don't invest in AI, if I don't invest in blockchain, I'm going to fall behind. But before you run, you better figure out what direction you want to run in. Because what I find is a lot of companies are running quickly. They're just moving in the wrong direction that they need to move. So first of all, I love this. And to me, that's the inside track. The inside track is 
uh, there's the trend and there's the right trend. So, you know, in this whole show, Profit from the Inside, you know, the inside track. Um, so what are the right trends? You know, let's put it, let's put our listeners on the inside track on what the right trends are that they should be following and how do they know? So I don't think there are right trends. I think that's actually the mistake is trends are become this generic view of the world. Each company needs to assess their own individual needs, even within an industry. Each company has different cultures, different competitive differentiators, different ways that they want to go to market. That should be driving their decisions. So there are no trends other than making sure you're solving the right problem the right way. To me, that's the only trend that matters. And then what you do is you step back and say, well, great. Okay, I'm in financial services. Blockchain looks interesting. How is it interesting? What problem does it solve that we're not able to solve today? And I think that's where it becomes more important, but it will be different from company to company, industry to industry, company size, there's company geography. All these things are going to impact the decisions a company makes. How do companies decide if they're going to lead the market or follow the market? What should they do? And is the market really just for big companies to lead? Only the most razor edge companies? Any, any sense about that? I don't think I have a strong opinion on that because I've seen, I've worked with companies overseas that were fast followers and they've got amazing, amazing businesses. Uh, So their whole goal was let somebody else take the lead and then they're going to reverse engineer it and figure out how to make it better and cheaper. So it is very expensive to go first. Totally. Yeah. The education curve is terribly expensive. And especially in a situation where there's some, something new, there's adoption it's very expensive. So in a certain way, fast follow is really a cool idea. Yeah. So I, I, but I don't think there's a right answer. Somebody always goes first, but even the people who go first, aren't the ones going first. I mean, everybody loves to talk about Apple, you know, with the iPod, but that wasn't the first MP3 player. You know, I think it was the Rio was the the first company that had an MP3 player and, but they made it better. So even Apple, who is a leader was still a fast follower in some respects and that they just took what others were already doing and make it better. Now the iPhone, okay, that's a different game, but look, we had a, we had Blackberries. They just made a much, much better Blackberry for a whole variety of reasons. So everybody's building on what other people are doing. And so the concept of leading versus following is actually a little misleading in some respects because we're always leading and we're always following no matter what we're doing. Well, the song says there's nothing new under the sun. So totally. there you go. Yep, exactly. Right. Well, listen, Steve, this has been a fascinating interview. And thanks for sharing the inside track on, on innovation, on the mistakes that companies make. Uh, we'll put your contact information in the show notes. You got any big travel plans? I know that you're traveling all the time. Anything? Uh, what's, what's your next uh, couple of months look like? Uh, I have Korea, South Korea, obviously, uh, <laughs> Brazil. <laughs> hey, not for uh, long. Who knows? That, uh, yeah. that might change. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. What yeah, so I've got South America. I've got Asia. I've got Europe. I've got a whole bunch of really interesting things coming up. Plus, I mean, most of my travel, fortunately, is in the U.S. because I'm finding as I get older, my long trips become more tiring to my body. And so I love being home. Well, listen, uh, next time in Florida, we'll get together. Unless you're in California before then, we'll, uh, we'll make it happen. Fantastic. All right, Good man. Thank you very much for being on the show. All right. My pleasure. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team.
For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.